Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, I remind you this is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord, and how is he his son? Let's pray. O Lord God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would prepare our hearts to receive, to listen, and enable us to inwardly digest that word, that we might leave different than when we came, uh, ever more closer to Jesus Christ, ever more deeply convicted about the things of God, ever more energized to live for God in this world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there are contextual questions here. You remember where we are. Jesus is in the midst of large crowds. His disciples are there, the apostles. Uh, There are other disciples there who are not the apostles. There are crowds who are listening to him. There are also Pharisees who are in opposition to him, men who would contend with him uh, and are contending with him. There are scribes. There are uh, uh, Sadducees. There are high priests. There are the religious experts of the day, the scriptural experts of the day, lawyers and scribal experts who who know the particulars of the law. Uh, And there are those who are in positions of authority uh, who have a very definite uh, iron in the fire, as it were, or or, uh, maybe that fails, uh, more of a a self-interest in what, uh, what Jesus says and in their questioning of Jesus. Well, Jesus is, he has been questioned in chapter 20. And uh, in verse 2, they came, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? And uh, there was a question in verse 22 in the same chapter. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then there was another question based upon a, a very elaborate scenario of one young man who married a young woman and uh, he died leaving her no children and by Old Testament Levitical law uh, the the brother was bound to live with uh, to take that woman as his wife and to bear her children in the name of the son uh, or of her husband or first husband who had died and this goes on in seven different cycles with seven different brothers which one is married to her in heaven Asked by the group that doesn't believe in heaven, the Sadducees and the scribes. Well, Jesus has responded and he has asked them a question. He has uh, asked them um, by what authority or what baptism did, did John baptize those whom he baptized? And, of course, they were afraid to answer that question. They knew that that could go in either direction. Uh, Jesus has illustrated the, uh, their wickedness. In the, in the parable of the wicked tenants, uh, those individuals who had been uh, given a, vine, a vineyard that was perfectly prepared for them, uh, wonderfully fruit producing, they came as tenants and they owed to the Lord of, of the vineyard uh, an explicit share 
when he sent his representatives, they don't give the share. In fact, he eventually sends his son. They kill and murder the son, thinking that they would overtake the inheritance for themselves. And Jesus has illustrated very clearly that he considers them wicked tenants, as they have been tenants over or renters over the religious authority of the day. Even the question that they asked, you know, can you tell us, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus says, well, do you have a denarius? Pull it out. And whose face is on there? Of course, they pulled it out and Caesar's face was on there. And he answered to them, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, that concluded their various questions and they went away quiet because they didn't, they couldn't undermine him or trip him up in Old Testament law, and they couldn't undermine his knowledge of the Scriptures, and they couldn't damn him with a with a damning question, as it were, before the the crowds. They couldn't ignite one side against another, and uh, and ultimately see him rejected by the people. It just didn't work. He has the infinite mind of God. They're speaking to God, the author of the Scriptures. So Jesus, Jesus has a further question. They're quiet now. And you can see, as it were, his adversaries place their hand over his mouth, their mouths. Well, Jesus has a question for them, and he has a biblical question, something about which they are supposed to be experts in. Jesus asks them a question, and it concerns Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, is a messianic psalm, a royal messianic psalm, a glorious messianic psalm, very much like or similar themes to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is similar in some ways to Psalm 110. It is an explicit picture, an illustration of the throne room of God, and there is the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, Uh, And there he is at the right hand of God, sitting on the throne. Here in Psalm 110, verse 1, scholars tell us, and liberal scholars tell us, this is a, a coronation psalm, a coronation psalm about David, David's coronation. That, that, that the one who is before him, or the Lord, said to David, David, come, sit at my, sit on the throne of God. And of course, yes, it's true that the throne of, of ancient Israel was referred to as the throne of God. And when they sat, even in Solomon's language or, or his literature, it was referred to as the, the, the throne of God. But there's a problem with that assumption as they deny that this refers to Jesus. They deny that this is about the Son of God, the Messiah. They would say, this is the Lord speaking to David. And yet, even in Jesus' question, it's acknowledged that that's impossible. Now, the question in Psalm 110 of who is speaking to whom has been one that has plagued uh, expositors for many years. It's, it's, it's not a contentious issue in the sense that we all know who is speaking to who. It's very clear in the text. But there are some who would undermine that reality. And there were those in Jesus' own day who rejected the Messiah, who rejected the idea of the Son of God being this person before them. 
They rejected it because they knew, they rejected him because they knew that he had come from Joseph and Mary. They did not understand the, uh, the, 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 the birth of the Savior, the incarnation of Christ, the, the virgin birth of Jesus. They knew of him. He was familiar to them. They rejected him as a Messiah. They did not like the fact that he was gentle and lowly and meek. That he had come not to serve their political aspirations, but he had come to deliver his people from their sins and to free them from the wrath of God. And so they rejected him. And yet Jesus would take them back to an Old Testament text that affirms precisely who he is. It's not enough for them to be silent as his critics. They must, they must affirm him verbally and physically as their Savior. It's exactly what John says, that if you believe that Jesus in your heart, that Jesus is Lord, and if you affirm with your lips that God raised him from the dead, then you, 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 you will inherit salvation and eternal life through Christ. Well, these men have not bowed their knee to Jesus. They have refused to believe. And so Jesus takes them to Psalm 110, verse 1. And he, he, he quotes it here in this passage. And Jesus says very carefully and appropriately, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Uh, up to this point in, mes- in, 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 in ancient Israel, at that time, It was widely believed, rightly so, that Psalm 110 verse 1 referred to the Messiah, an eventual son of David that would come and who would be, who would come from the lineage of David, who would be connected to David by blood in the line of the Davidic kingdom. That he would be a progeny of David and that that Psalm 110 was about his eventual future reign that would never come to an end. They believed all of that, but that what they didn't believe was that Jesus was the one. But Jesus has a question for them concerning that Messianic Psalm. How is it that they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, and this is in rejection of the, the liberal idea that, well, God is speaking to David, telling him, I'm going to bless your kingdom in this way. However, there are problems inherent within Psalm 110. There is a future reign uh, that will be eternal and unending. That's a problem because David died. Secondly, uh, that reign would be over the entire world. David never reigned over the world. The whole earth. He simply reigned over a small portion of the messianic place uh, within, or not the messianic, forgive me, but the biblical geographical region of Mesopotamia, or not Mesopotamia, but, 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 but the Middle East that we know it as today. Jerusalem and its surrounding places and uh, through the tribes spread throughout what we know as geographical Israel today. Further, David is the one who is speaking. In this psalm, in the prescript, David identifies himself as the one who is writing this psalm. David is speaking in the psalm. David himself says, and Jesus, who is the Logos, the living word, says, 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. David himself is recounting, saying, recording, praising, and praying in the Psalms. And he says this in in prophecy, in prophetic recognition of a future son that God will raise up after him. The Lord said to my Lord, David speaking is referring to his future progeny as my Lord. And so what it literally says here, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand. Now, you'll recognize those names. Yahweh is the holy name of God by which he revealed himself to ancient Israel. It's in the equivalent of the Greek, Jehovah God. Adonai is the name for Lord. David never called anyone except for the Lord, Lord. And David didn't need to. He was the king, the king of Israel. And yet he refers to this individual whose reign will be over the entire world, who will come from his loins ultimately and eventually in his genealogy, and whom God will establish forever and ever in reign. And David refers to him as Adonai, Lord. Clearly, David, as he records this psalm, sees Jesus. In his mind's eye, through faith, God has granted to him to see prophetically Jesus. The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. And how is he his son? It's an indisputable text in the mind of David's hearers. And it's referring to Christ, the Messiah. It's referring to the Messiah. And it's acknowledged in all of the various sects and parties of those who have refused to believe in him. And amongst all the disciples, it's it's widely accepted in his day that that psalm was a messianic psalm referring to, in the voice of David, an eventual one who would come from the line of David as a son of David, and who would be the Lord of David. He would be the anointed one of God's promised blessing. It's the Christ. How is it that they say the Christ is David's son, the Messiah? It's unmistakable as he sits at the right hand of God. Yahweh says to Adonai, come and sit at my right hand. No one can sit at the right hand of God unless he is God. No other person can sit at the right hand of God unless he is another person of the Trinity. The second person of the Trinity, in fact, is the one who is in view. He is the eternal Son. He is the one whom God said, God the Father said, Come, and I will put your enemies, I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Don't miss the reference here to the reality of the Trinity either. The Father speaks to the Son. Yahweh speaks to Adonai. The Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. The Trinity is unmistakable in the the entirety of Scripture. 
So God the Father says to God the Son, sit in this position of honor and of power, of God quality and of God power and and of God honor that alone belongs to God before which all the extraordinary creatures are arrayed before Him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. God Jehovah, God the Father says to the Son, come and sit at my right hand. Clearly, all that is understood of God the Lord is heaped upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And this David sees by faith. And we see by faith. You see that Jesus is the very embodiment of deity, of God enrobed in human flesh, of Godness, for he is God eternal. He clearly identifies the Messiah as the son of David. Now, son of David was a very special messianic title of Jesus. Seventeen times in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. You remember in the tra- when, when Jesus enters triumphantly into Jerusalem, recorded only a couple of chapters ago in Luke's Gospel, in Matthew's parallel account, Jesus is explicitly proclaimed to be the son of David. Hosanna, son of David. <coughs> Jesus 17 times is affirmed in the New Testament as the son of David. Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. At least 20 references. And beyond that, some reference the Psalm 110 multiple times. And uh, in every New Testament reference to Psalm 110, Psalm 110 is recognized as a messianic text referring exclusively to Jesus Christ. The entire and the complete and constant unending testimony of New Testament scripture is that Jesus is in fact the Messiah. In full, explicit, glorious fulfillment of Psalm 110. Matthew is carefully traced in chapter 1, and Luke in chapter 3 is carefully traced the lineage of Jesus through the line of Joseph from the very loins of David. Jesus is a son of David. He is the great son of David, who who David refers to as the Lord, Adonai. A thousand years after David, the one whom God promised has come. In perfect fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 in 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 the Davidic covenant, God's promise to establish an eternal kingdom from David's lineage is true. It's here. It's before these men. The hope of generations upon generations is there before their very eyes. And they have refused to believe in Jesus. Even though his lineage... His miracles, his teaching, the approbation of heaven itself has affirmed this is the Messiah. They have refused to believe. Romans 1.3, Paul writes and says, As to his earthly life, he, Jesus, was a descendant of David. As the son of David, he is the long-awaited promised deliverer. The woman whose daughter was tormented by demons called him son of David. What she's doing is she's affirming Psalm 110 is true of you. 
That's faith. It's not a faithless claim in Matthew 20. She is explicitly saying, you are the Messiah. There's an explicit identification of Jesus as this Lord from Psalm 110 in, in, in Luke 19.38 by the crowds who welcomed him into Jerusalem, as Matthew records in Matthew chapter 21.22. The blind men by the road, as they cried out, as they hear Jesus of Nazareth is walking by in Matthew chapter 20, they, they, they proclaim, Jesus, Son of David! <clears throat> you see, the idea of Jesus as Son of David, His title as a Son of David, may not, may not really strike where we itch this morning, but it should. Because it speaks to the reality that He is the Ancient of Days. He is the, the Promised One. He is the one who has been promised to David and to every subsequent generation that there would be one who would come who would reign over all things sovereignly whose reign would know no end. And that comforts us, doesn't it? We have a Savior whose reign will never come to an end. We go through four-year periods when we see presidents raised up and we go through two-year cycles where we have senators every couple of years that must be voted on, House of Representatives, etc., etc. And even in the Supreme Court, we see <clears throat> justices die. We see them get replaced. They can be impeached or, or you know, I imagine there's a process for impeachment if, if there was egregious behavior. <clears throat> and so government as we see it is transitory. Even the Queen of England, who, is re- who has been reigning for, what, 50 years plus? I forget how many. And yet, even she will pass from this world. Her reign is not forever. And then Charles will come in. Charles, who has had an interesting past, we'll say, without getting into it. And the same can be said of all of our politicians. We put hope, we put a lot of stock in politicians and in their two or four year appointments, but they will not stay there forever. Government in this world is transitory. And yet for the believer, we understand that Jesus is affirming a kingdom which is unshakable. He reigns over a kingdom that cannot be shaken because of who he is and what he has done, because he is unmistakably sure and true, and he abides. Well, there are other instances in Scripture that affirm that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 110. This is a rather lengthy quote from Acts chapter 2. And Luke, I remind you, also wrote Acts, and Acts is simply book number two of his two-volume Great life's work. This is Peter who is preaching, and he he has very much in his mind Jesus who is the son of David. And he says this, Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on earth that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. 
exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and who are for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The Apostle Paul also, in another passage of Scripture, says this about Jesus. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. And further down it goes on. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. These passages should thrill our soul. Because what they tell us is what was promised in Psalm 110 was fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ. And that those promises were not only to people who are listening to Peter, but they are are for all of us who are far off, who are generations away from those moments when Peter the Apostle preached before them. It is also deeply comforting for us to know that all things are under the feet of Christ today. All the things that you and I are afraid of, the future uncertainty of what we're going to do next year, how we're going to live, who's going to come into our life and who's going to leave. All the uncertainty of the future and what's around the corner that we do not know, is all in complete subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your unknown future can be given utterly and completely to Him because He knows and He is reigning and He is sovereign. It's deeply comforting to know that our future is in His hands. It's wonderful to know that the people that we fear, whose influence that we are afraid of, perhaps even have bullied us, or are giving us a hard time, or who have threatened us, they too are under the sovereign hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such that no one can touch us unless God is pleased to permit it for our good and His glory. Such that Satan himself cannot harm you if God is pleased to preserve you and keep you from Him in His influence. For you belong to Christ. You belong to the Lord. 
there are movies about demonic influences and things, and we see odd things every once in a while on television. Christine and I, we spent a night away for our 33rd wedding anniversary this last week, and I'll tell you this, there's really nothing on television to watch that's any good. It's all trash. But we were flipping around just trying to find something. We wound up centering on the Weather Channel or, 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 or on some other, I don't know, something on food. That's really all you can watch. We watched that for a little bit, and then we shut it off and just talked. But there are lots of things where I think it, as we were flitting through, there was some 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 show about some demonic thing, and you know I just shrugged it off and went on. It it didn't bother me as I went to sleep. It's it's not that I don't believe in demonic influences in our world. I do, but rather I I have absolute and utter confidence in my Savior to keep me. And we can be absolutely certain of it because the Apostle Paul, who knows the risen Christ, says God has already placed all things under his feet and has appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are connected to Christ. We are connected to the one who is at the right hand of God the Father, reigning and ruling over all things. There are many other conclusions of the exact same nature in 1 Corinthians 15.25, Colossians 3.1, Hebrews 1.3, Hebrews 1.13, Hebrews 8.1, Hebrews 10.12, Hebrews 12.2. The New Testament loves to clarify explicitly that Jesus is the Messiah of Psalm 110. He is the Adonai that David spoke of. And it's incredibly important for us to recognize that Jesus is not some wonderful, not just a moral example. He's not just a great prophet. He's not just a wonderful man. But this is the question that this text asks of us this morning. Do you really understand who Jesus is? Do you know who Jesus is? We tend to think of Jesus in very softened terms. Well, he is a a very gentle man. We think of his statements that he is lowly, that he is meek, that he has nowhere to lay his head. We think of all the the very gentle movements and statements. We think of a, a very soft Jesus, if I can say that. And I think our society, looking at Jesus as a moral character, a wonderful moral character, not really understanding every word that he said, they'd have a fit if they did. But that's the picture our society makes of Jesus. But this is the picture of Jesus, understood from the Old Testament to the New. He is sitting in divinity at the right hand of God, in recognition of his divinity and power. And the enemies of God have been made a footstool for him to place his feet upon. Don't miss this in this passage in verse 43. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ was sent for this purpose. To save his people from their sins. But there are other additional things for which Christ has been sent. To subdue all the enemies of God. That includes sin. 
and that includes sinners who have rejected him. God permit that each of us would consider and think very, very carefully about what we make of who Jesus is. It's not a question just for the Pharisees, but one intended to be spoken to each of us today here in this place. What do you think about Jesus? I'm not asking for your general opinion. I'm asking for you uh, to examine your mind and to think of your thoughts. And what do you think about when you think of Jesus? It sits at the center of the discussion today in our text. What do you think about Christ? Who is Jesus Christ to you? And what he must be to you is the eternal Son of God who lives and reigns and, 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 and is the infinite and eternal omnipotent God. He is the sovereign Savior. Do you understand who he is? He is no less than God. John 1.1 1, 1. In the beginning was God. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. Here is the commission with which He has been charged. And God said... Now sit at my right hand. Now we theologians have an understanding of three important phrases concerning the risen Christ. One, we refer to, we've referred to his resurrection. We understand that his body lay in the grave, was reanimated by his own power, his soul united to his body. We understand the resurrection, but we also understand his ascension. He physically and bodily rose from this earth into the very presence of the Father. He is bodily existing with the Father. It was that bodily Savior who God the Father said, Come, sit at my right hand. And it was at that point that Jesus took up session. Session. What do we mean by that? But that he, he sits in authority and reigns. We refer to the resurrection of Christ the ascension of Christ. If he didn't ascend, we're in trouble. His ascension signals God's acceptance of him as our surety and our Savior. The completeness and fullness of his sacrifice. The pleasure of God in all that Jesus had done and accomplished. But in his session, it's extraordinarily there, there he is commissioned with the work of God to subdue all things to his authority. So I ask you, as, as the Father says to the Son, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, are you an enemy of Jesus Christ today? Are you an enemy of Christ today? And you are an enemy of Christ if you are not a believer, if you're, if you're agnostic about who Jesus is, if you've heard the biblical account of who Jesus is, and you've rejected that account. You will be part of what Christ will put his feet up upon in subjection to himself one day. It doesn't need to be that way. You can turn to Jesus Christ and commit to him and believe in him as the eternal son of God, the savior of mankind. There's no more vital question, no greater need for you or for me this morning and for all eternity than to consider this and to submit all those lesser considerations 
of what's important and of what we're thinking about and wondering about with this economy and political diversity and acrimony and what's going to happen with inflation and what about the cost of gas and of groceries. These are all important things to think about, but they are not the bigger issues of life. The bigger issue of life, the biggest, the very biggest question you'll face is what do you make of Christ this morning? The greatest issue of your life is sin. Fellowship with God is not possible without the removal of your sins. And this is the object of God's great wrath and opposition to you. God will strip away every pretense, every distraction, every false expectation, refusal to consider this question, even if, uh, even as you're called this morning to do so. He'll strip it all away. And the, the reality that you are an enemy of Jesus Christ and of God the Father and of God the Spirit will be revealed. So what do you think about Christ? Is He everything to you? You've believed in Christ. He's your Savior. But is He everything to you? Do you ever doubt that Jesus is the Christ? What, what's your view of Him? What do you make of Him in your life right now? What, what position does He hold in the course of all that sifts through your life with regard to priorities? Why isn't He at the center of your existence? Why do you exhibit so little of him in, in your cross-bearing, in your suffering, in our relationships with one another? Why isn't he exhibited in your life within the church and your commitment to his kingdom? Where's the disconnect? Are we guilty of losing our first love? Must we not ask this of our souls daily? Why am I content to go into my day? Why am I content to live without Christ near me? Why am I content to, to own Christ intellectually, theologically, and yet experientially my heart is so distant, so far from Him? I am not joyful, I am not kind, I am not patient, I am not compassionate. And yet He is so delightfully, wonderfully near. <clears throat> is He in your thoughts? Those of us who know that we are sinners now full well, and we know full well, the value of the grace that he has given to us, the value of knowing him as being far greater than riches and precious things. Is he our Lord? Can we say with joy and affection in our heart, I love the Lord. I love Jesus. I love Jesus imperfectly. I'm supposed to love him with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength. I do not. But I do love him. I love him because he first loved me. I love him because he gave himself for me. I love him because he died for my sins. I love him because even where I am unfaithful, he is ever faithful. I love him because he gave his life on the cross, even while people were around him ridiculing and scoffing at him. I love him because his blood is so precious, it washes away my sin. I love him because he has taken my guilt away, such that even when my inner mind and soul convinces me I am utterly lost, Jesus says I am his. 
I love him because he is in session at the right hand of God the Father. I love him because even the intimate details of my life, he's reigning over them all. I pray that God will give you and give me, each of us, an infinite and ever-growing desire for more of Jesus Christ. That he would increase our love for him. That he would remind us anew every day of the benefits that have accrued to us in Christ Jesus the Son. And that he would deepen our conviction that Jesus is the Messiah the only Savior, our Messiah, our Savior. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh, Lord God, we give thanks to you for your word and the certainty of it that Psalm 110 is about Jesus. It's about our Savior, our Lord. And we thank you that nothing in this world, whether powers and principalities, sickness or death, heights and depths. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now convince us, O God, because our, our consciences condemn us and we feel our hearts so far from you sometimes. We can affirm extraordinary things with our mind and with our lips and yet be so far from them from feeling them and taking taking them home to our heart. Lord, forgive us. Thank you for Jesus. Glorify your Son who sits at your right hand. Never look upon us without looking upon him. And we will extol the reign of Jesus in this world until the day that we die. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.